Welcome to my den. Today's episode is an experiment. I brought on two amazing executives, Adam Levin, the CEO of Information Experts, and Stephen Keith, the Chief Experience Officer at CX Pilots, to ask the question, what would happen if you suddenly, due to, I don't know, legislation from down high, from up high, wow, whatever that term is, (laughs) if you were forced to, as a company, replace half your staff with people under the age of 30, native digitals, what would you do differently in your business? What would you have to quickly adapt to? And this was an interesting thought experiment with these two amazing leaders, because I know many of you are asking similar questions of how to acclimate to a Gen Z employee, how to build a culture that resonates with Gen Z. So this thought experiment helped us go down the rabbit hole a bit of what would we really have to fundamentally change about our organization to make this work? Now, of course, in the real world, the acclimation to Gen Z is going to be a little bit slower. You're going to have a trickle in of entry-level employees, et cetera, et cetera. But there were some fascinating takeaways from today's episode, and I want you to pay special attention to how Stephen and Adam would reorganize their culture or reorganize their hierarchy in their organizations. They're both boutique consulting slash um, design firms. So in their case, they both have fewer than 30 employees, and yet the the needs that, that they would have if they suddenly had to replace half their staff with Gen Z, the actual changes they'd be making are pretty drastic. So um, this is a cool conversation. I just think it's cool. I've known Steven for a long time. He and I met years ago when I worked in professional services with law firms and accounting firms. And, um, and he's just an all around, or all around fascinating guy. So you'll enjoy him. And then Adam is the CEO, again, of Information Experts. They are a strategic and tactical marketing service firm. So definitely check them out. Just go to informationexperts.com. And for Steven with CX Pilots, I had the pleasure of working with Steven on several big major projects um, through the firm that I worked at at the time. And CX Pilots is literally the leading consulting firm both here and in the UK for professional services companies that need CX management consulting to put humanity back in their brand. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd encourage you to connect with me and them on LinkedIn. It's just amazing the work that these two guys are doing and the perspectives that they have are quite radical. If you are a leader or a parent, I wanted to give you a special announcement before we dive into the episode itself that the Diskills community, the GPT Innovators Cup has finished. And you'll, if you're following us on social media, you'll see some awesome updates from the students who competed in the Innovators Cup and the types of businesses they built. So definitely check us out on social if you're not already following. You can follow both the podcast and our student-led organization, Diskills. Um, we'll drop the links in the show notes but you can follow us at Native Digital Show on Instagram and LinkedIn. And for Diskills, follow us at Get Diskills anywhere you get your social. 
All right, without further ado, we will dive into the episode, hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Stephen Keith and Adam Levin. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Awesome. All right. I'm so excited to have this conversation with y'all today. This has been a long time coming. And Stephen, did you just get back from London? Was that like two weeks ago? No, it's like, it was a month or so ago. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're setting up an office in London and, and bringing on some staff. And um, the nature of our work is that we have to be, we have to demonstrate um, that we're able to serve our global clients um, on multiple fronts. And if the, if one of our clients is headquartered in London or Dubai or wherever, we have to, you know, we have to be present there. So it's just kind of a part of our business that we have, I, I think we just have to sort of accept. And uh, they weren't kidding when they said that business is global. It really is. And as you uh, do this work, kind of this crazy, strange work that we do, you have to kind of, you have to show up in, in, in all caps. Yeah, that's that's so cool. I just, I feel like last time we talked, you were just at that point maybe saying y'all were expanding to London, if I recall correctly, but that was only, what, eight months ago, nine months ago? Yeah, it's moving really fast. I think post the, um, post pandemic, a lot of our, a lot of our clients have been, you know, had a sort of renewed sense of urgency. The pandemic really fucked up the way people's um, professional relationships are occurring. And so coming out of that, I think people want to use firms like CX Pilots to um, help correct some of the errors or to, or, or to rekindle some of the really important relationships they have with their clients. Yeah, that's so interesting. So you found that instead of like other... Firms, for example, I'm talking with scaled back their operations. They're, you know, I had um, David Faulkner, who is a former VP of design at thousands of um, Bose stores. They just ended up closing all of their, you know, different headquarters in different countries. And I, I look over here, I'm like, Stephen's expanding. He's, you know, London, Dubai, Toronto, all that um, post-pandemic. So what caused you to go the other direction of shifting to creating physical locations instead of replacing them or just or erasing them I don't know I always I always, I feel like I you know my entire career I felt like I've been doing everything backward and wrong uh, so this is no different than uh, most everything you know every position I find myself in I feel like I'm swimming upstream um, I just listen to the market I listen to our clients and you know we just did a massive project for a uh, HR consulting group and they were mostly in London and um, you know we have contacts in London and we said why don't we just would it be better if you had if your experts were local and then 
there was just a resounding hell yes. Uh, so the cost benefit is, you know, basically tells us the story. It doesn't cost that much. Um, the clients really value it. So why not do it? Fascinating. So interesting. Adam, what have you seen in your world? Like, is it, is there a trend toward more physical locations or being in person with clients or have you all pulled back to the, to more digital? I would say the, uh, the trend on, on our end was excel, accelerated on the opposite of digitally, right? Because we do a lot of, that's what we do is digital marketing. Uh, so if I'm working on your website or a digital campaign, they really, you know, it would be ideal that they would, it would be nice if they wanted to see me, but most of my clients don't. They're like, we can jump on a Teams, we can do a Zoom, it's very productive, and all my deliverables are all digital. Yeah. So there's yeah. not a big need for me to see them in person. Fair like if enough. If I'm working on your website for your podcast, you're not, I don't need to come to your office. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, that that's what I'm hearing. Again, most, most industries have have gone back virtually. So Stephen, that's just interesting that you guys are expanding. What, I mean, what an opportunity as well right now, but I have to say, we're going to get into the meat of this in a second, but so Adam, you've got hot wheels in the background, which I have to ask you about. And Stephen, you've got a, <laughs> I just can't stop laughing. <laughs> a red meerkat, um, in the background. I, okay. So you guys have to tell me the stories, like what is happening? Adam, hot wheels. Are you, is this your kids? Or well, are you I'm, hot wheels guys? You know, I'm probably, you know, uh, I was born in the 60s. So I grew up in the 70s, and every kid had Hot Wheels cars, right? So that was I'm sure Stephen had Hot Wheels. So you know, Hot Wheels is emotionally, you know, resonates with me. That's so cool. You know, Adam. The uh, last week, I had this. I had the strangest dream that I I I woke up in a CarMax bathroom with <laughs> a with a bunch of Hot Wheels in my mouth. <laughs> See, it's, it's in Stephen's subconscious. That's how part of our childhood it was. I still, I still have Hot Wheels. I, like, I still have two or three Hot Wheels that I... Yes, yeah, so I have them somewhere. Yes, you have to. That's so funny. I was watching... Um, oh, my gosh. What's the name of that show? The one where people take in antiques or collectibles or whatever and get them valued. Oh, my gosh. What is the name of that show? Antiques Roadshow. Maybe it's maybe it's the roadshow. It's the one that's like in the. Oh my gosh! I feel like one of the antique stores is in Raleigh near you, Stephen. There's like a. Anyway, what, whatever that show. There's like multiple of them, but one of them. This guy brings in this massive Pokemon card collection that was like worth fifty thousand dollars. I think it was. So it's like watching you know the Hot Wheels era and like my parent. My parents still have Hot Wheels and comics i guess which comics are returning and then the um the pokemon thing was totally like millennials and part of gen z i never got into it but apparently this guy it was funny because he said he and his kids started collecting them when they were younger and his kids went to college and became adults and he never got out of the, the pokemon phase so i just That's thought funny. oh my gosh it's it's pretty crazy wait adam do you have kids remind me i have two boys 26 in uh, check 25 and 22. Nice. So Wait, my youngest is uh, graduating college uh, next month. I'm done. That's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Getting close. And we yeah, I got, I got another four weeks, and then so I'm very excited to have them off the payroll. <laughs> off the <laughs> payroll. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, wait, when do your kids exit the payroll? Just after college? After college, did not, uh, you know, graduating debt free. So he, no, he's on his own. <laughs> That's fantastic. And Steven, catch me up on your kids. Like your son, I think last time we talked, he was, he did some crazy cool project and then he decided he didn't want to go to college. And I was like, you know, go, that's amazing. What, what's he up to? I, I'm very similar to um, Adam in the kids department. I have a 23 year old that designs um, weapons systems for the, for like Marine fighter jets. And another one who um, is, you know, he, smokes really high-end weed and is a phenomenal illustrator and he uh works at really fancy restaurants so um they've been off the payroll for a while however i just uh i just wired one of them 250 bucks so So not completely off the payroll (laughs) (laughs) yeah are they ever are we ever I feel like my family lately. So I think Stephen, you know, I'm the oldest of seven kids. And I, every time I look at my parents, I'm like, oh my gosh, when you all had seven, it was not like we were all, you know, off the payroll at 22. It's like, we, there's, there's some of us who keep, you know, not me, um, who knows maybe in the future, but keep coming back like mom, dad, we need support in X, Y, Z areas. And it's, yeah, it's, you take on a lot yeah. when you become a parent. Yeah. What are Quite some a commitment. Of th- I, what are the, some of the most surprising things you all have found about parenting native digital humans? Well, okay, so I think uh, I learned a lot. I I, I was born in, the, in you know I'm in, I'm 58, so I, I grew up. There was no internet. Period. There was you know the internet came out like sophomore, junior year of college. I remember my senior year of college, we had we had a dot matrix printer. I thought that was fantastic because previously we had to type in our. Uh, we had to type all our papers around. Wait, what's uh, it this, called? This is a, this a, is a dot, great story. A I'm dot ma- What is the printer called? <laughs> Steven, help me out here. It's a dot, dot matrix. matrix. <laughs> I have so it's, no it's idea. It's really slow. It's, you would know, again. <laughs> Which, thank you for making my point. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that printers haven't progressed anyway. So. <laughs> no, no, no. Believe me, it's a laser printer. It's, it's not a dot matrix printer. So I'll tell you a quick funny story. So... Uh, which illustrates your point exactly. So uh, this is this is years ago, and actually this is the time when we had it. We had a big office, and I get a call three o'clock. My youngest son calls me. He goes, Dad, Dad, it's an emergency. It's emergency. Oh my God! I'm, I'm in a meeting. I got I got to go. I got an emergency, right? So I pick up my car keys, and I think it's an emergency. I'm taking him to the emergency room. There's something physically wrong with him. I'm about 20 minutes away. I go, his youngest name is Jordan. I go, Jordan, I'm on my way. I'll be there in 20 minutes. I'll, we'll take care of it. And this, I, so literally, I'm walking out of my office. I'm in the parking lot. I have my keys in my hand. I'm rolling. I'm putting, you know, getting ready to put the, you know, open the door and start driving. And he goes, No, no, Dad, you don't understand. And I go, I'm on my way, Jordan. I'm on my way. He goes, You don't understand. The router is broken and we don't have internet. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> what did you just say? Because, yeah, I, I, we don't have any internet. I'm home from school and the, the, the internet's down. 
I said, okay. And then I walked back to my office. I go, Jordan, I'll be home after work, but I made it through an entire childhood without any internet. You can you can live for a few hours until we, until we fix it. But it was just hysterical. It was like a complete meltdown because the internet was done. <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. Exactly. You're like, you didn't understand what you're going to I don't have internet. <laughs> Did you ask him how long it was before he called you about there being no internet? I, I think it was about 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I can relate. Steven, he lasted you, about 10 you... minutes before he imploded. Yeah, I feel that. It's like, it's literally like you're getting um, uh, life support, you know, somewhat disconnected or at least a little, you know, that the wire looks weird. The cord looks weird. You don't know what to do. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty interesting. Steven, have your kids done something like that? Their entire lives. I got divorced about a hundred years ago, and one of the reasons um, why was around enabling my two boys with technology. So I forced them to become early adopters. I said, "This is a this is a skill that you cannot prepare enough for." To uh, and so they had iPhones. You know, the month Apple introduced the iPhone, and the like oh my god there's porn like they can do they can access all this porn it's like i know it's fantastic um uh they can you know they can they'll be able to communicate with drug dealers i'm like i i know they'll learn negotiation skills like the all you know all of this stuff so my kids have you know as adam's kids have, have like just completely flipped their shit because they couldn't access something or whatever and i you know i have to remind them that this None of this existed uh, prior to whatever. And we all turned out to be, you know, relatively, you know, psychologically well-adjusted humans with coping skills, you know, and, and so on. I, I imagine that Adam and I are your parents' age. That's just my guess. Mm -hmm. Yes. My parents are, see, my dad this year will be 53. So, yes. We how old? 53. Okay, so I'm actually older than your dad. Yeah, by a little bit. Same generation, though. I mean, say, the Hot yes. Wheels gen, you know, the Star Wars gen, all that jazz. <laughs> but, uh, Stephen, that's probably why you and I get along. I didn't realize that about your your wife and your uh, your two boys. It's, it is very interesting, and this is actually the perfect segue, thank you, for us talking about what we're going to get into today about native digitals, managing native digitals, and thinking through some major disruptions. And I think it is interesting, just Stephen, to your point, growing up as a native digital and watching my friend's parents who all had different approaches to tech. And of course it was different, you know, texting versus social media versus even having a phone or my parents for years didn't allow us to even go on YouTube without them standing there. So it's, you know, just very, very different parenting approaches. And um, do you, looking back, I'm curious to just ask both of you, what, like, what was your approach, Adam, to tech and parenting? Like how, how early did your kids have access? And if you could go back, would you change it? Would you keep your approach the same? Um, how would you handle that? Yeah, I would say from a philosophical perspective, it's very similar to Stephen. Um, you know, uh, uh, my attitude was, hey, they're going to be exposed to this, right? It's not like you can, the genie's out of the box. 
this is the world we live in. So I was pretty liberal as far as, uh, you know, giving them access to the, uh, you know, phones, internet, there was no restrictions. There was no parent controls on the shows because it was, to me, it was, it was pointless, right? And also I'm a marketer, right? So, you know, if you want to make somebody really want something, tell them they can't have it, right? Then it becomes super attractive. Oh, you can't, don't, don't go on that website. Well, guess what they're going to do now? <laughs> so I, I had the opposite end. I was like, you know, whatever you want, man. It's all good. Nice. And I just any questions there and, and have them be prepared. So I was always super liberal uh, about the, 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 giving them access to te- technology. Yeah. How about you, Stephen? Well, I mean, you already talked about how you gave them tech, but if you could go back, would you do it differently or same way? Probably the same way. I, I mean, I raised one autistic kid, so I had one one kid with Asperger's um, who had some social uh, connectivity issues, who used tech a little bit differently, um, and one who was just the exact opposite, who was you know, you know, always had a, a thousand friends and um, was you know communicating nonstop with his with his phone and. Um, uh, I think the only thing I would have done differently would have been be a little more present while they're using the technology and, you know, just so it wasn't like so completely wild west. Like I would have still made sure they had access to all this stuff, but I, you know, looking back, I would have said, you know, I probably would have spent a tiny bit more time saying, Hey, there's all kinds of evil shit out there. And you guys are like intelligent people. Like let's look at some evil shit together and let's process it. And, um, uh, there, there's one instance where, you know, one of my the kid with Asperger's asked me, he was probably like eight. He's like, hey, Papa, what's a, you know, what's a suicide bomber? And I said, oh, it's uh, it's when, it's, you know, it's it's typically a religious fundamentalist who like wires themselves with, you know, with C4 um, and then loads, you know, puts a belt on with like nails or broken glass, or whatever. And they go into a place full of people that they hate usually because of religious fundamentalism. And then they blow themselves up, hoping, you know, to maximize their kill count because they think that they're going to be, you know, go to the next level and um, have access to a bunch of virgins. Um, So it sounds cool, doesn't it? And they're like, what? That's disgusting. That's why would someone do that? I'm like, right. So um, then that would lead into a really deep, like meaningful discussion about geopolitics that would then lead into a deep discussion about religion. That would then lead it lead into a really deep discussion about, you know, empathy and caring about people with different values and ideals. And uh, I found it as sort of a gateway to have, you know, really meaningful things. But I just didn't do enough of it. I wish I would have been a little more present because now, in hindsight, I would have designed a whole different child. Yeah. I'm, I know how horrible that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one? Which child? Just both of them. Like, I just have a different, like, I, I, I set out to, like, design my children. I wanted them to be very curious, very imaginative, just, like, off the charts, um, wondering about, like, really important things and, like, learn how to engage with other human beings in different ways and, you know, be, like, don't walk away from a veteran with, no legs in a wheelchair who's asking for money, like go up and 
talk to them and ask them, you know, where'd your legs go and you know, stuff like that. Um, so technology and like the whole digital thing just, I think, made them just sort of amplified the effects of their imaginative and curiosity and so on. Absolutely. So now they're, now they're just like phenomenal human beings that, you know, have really harnessed that curiosity in really unique ways. I think the first time, Stephen, going back to, oh gosh, maybe two years ago when I was writing my book on Gen Z and you and I were having a conversation and you said something like, I can't think of a term to describe this generation. And I assume you're talking about your kids and all your, you know, the people you're exposed to from Gen Z. Um, But you said something like, they need to be called like bright eyes. Like that there's just this curiosity that is inherent in our generation. Maybe it's from the, the internet and exposure and videos and the way that we think. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of other factors. In fact, I had, uh, we just released an episode a couple of days ago of my friend Carlos Baradello, who he grew up in Argentina. And we had this entire conversation about the idea of he lived what he called natively local and my generation is natively global. So the idea of, you know, native analog, native digital, well, he said, I, I was natively local. You know, my sphere of influence when I was growing up was my town, you know, my small town. And now, as you know, no matter where in the world you're growing up, in most countries, you've got access to a cell phone and you're being influenced by global trends. So you might see, you know, you're on one TikTok video, you see kids in Zimbabwe who are dancing and they're part of an orphanage and they're funding, literally feeding kids through TikTok videos. Um, and then you have, you know, you scroll to the next video and you've got um, some guy up in the remote mountains of of uh, Chile who's filming, you know, videos of his, his farm as he's naturally producing the last known a type of coconut to grow in an area or, you know, papayas or whatever. And it's just so interesting, like that global exposure that causes us to think in this more expanded, perhaps more empathic, if we have the right parent, like parental guidance um, ways. And it's just inherent to how we grew up. Um, Adam, did your, did your kids experience that sort of like natively global mindset and how, how have you seen that play out? I would say in childhood, I mean, they were still, they had internet access, but they're, they were very much focused within their, their local communities, right? With the sports teams and the, the kids from school, uh, that was kind of their community. So I, w- I would say it was still, it was still very much local, but they, they, they communicated a lot on uh, social media. Is, and the other thing which I thought was, for, for me, which from a parental perspective, uh, as father of boys, they're big into video games, right? So they would do the, the group gaming. Yep. So I thought that was amazing. They'd all text each other, all right, we're going to get on at eight, right, or whatever. And then everyone, they would get the, head, you know, the, the headsets on, and then they would do the, the, the group gaming. I thought that that was – obviously, we didn't, I, we didn't do that. I mean, we didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't available when we, uh, uh, our childhood. So I thought that was wild as far as uh, the, the group gaming. No kidding. It's like a, it's a different form of 
social connection and whether it's, you know, gaming or group chats or communities or whatever, it's anyway, it's fun for me to be a part of it. It's also interesting to see other people's perspectives who didn't grow up with that and how you, you know, manage that as a parent, because there are, of course, <laughs> there's a lot of evil out there too, but it, it doesn't, it does spur a very interesting conversation. Um, okay. So I want to shift, shift our gears into this semi case study. So here's what I thought would be really interesting to bounce ideas off of with you all. So thinking through like all the things we just said about like our kids and generation and just how very different it is, I wanted to pose this question to y'all and we can totally have, you know, disagreements here or agreements. Here's the question. So I want you to imagine that suddenly today, there was a brand new law passed. God help us if a law like this ever gets passed, but let's just for the sake of argument here say, you are mandated by the federal government to suddenly replace at least half of your staff, half of your team with native digital humans. So people under the age of 27 who being natively digital have grown up in this digital world first, where our literal first, our first world is digital and our secondary is the real life or analog. What would you do? And I know this is a big question. So let's just start, Adam, do you want to start us off here? Like what, what's running through your head with this question? Well, this would be exceptionally challenging for me because we have an outsourced uh, business model uh, with marketing and we're hired for our experience and our expertise. So for me to uh, take advantage of this, utilize and leverage this talent pool, which I'm sure is amazing, uh, I personally would, I would have a hard time uh, to utilize them and then to sell us the services to get in front of the client. I just, you know, again, I'm, I'm in my late 50s, so it, it's obviously a generational thing because uh, I'm sure there's a ton of exceptionally talented people, but the perception is most of my clients are around my age, or, you know, maybe a little younger, but they're definitely an older generation. Uh, so I think it would be a challenge for me to put uh, those, uh, that, that demographic in front of my clients. And remind me, what about what age is your staff right now? Like, what's the range? The staff is probably mid, uh, mostly mid thirties to fifties. Okay. So cool. we're definitely in, you know, two generations removed, I guess, from your date of initials. This is going to be a fun discussion. I can just see it rolling. Steven, initial thoughts on the on the case study. I'd love it. I think it, you know, it, I like Adam, it, I mean, it would come with significant challenges. Um, generally, like the hardest part is that, you know, I find myself walking into my clients' boardrooms for a meeting. Or if I'm doing like, I, I'm teaching like empathy training to British lawyers and stuff like that. There, I mean, there's, there is ageism, you know, if you don't, if, if you're not fat and bald and have gray hair, like there's a trust issue, like uh, there, and there are younger people in our staff that they're like, I'm not doing that. Like there's no way in hell that, you know, a, you know, a 20 something is going to garner the trust necessary to, I mean, we have that, but 
you know, I, I accept the challenge. I, you know, if we're, we build frameworks and we build like all this stuff, like we need really smart people. Uh, some of the smartest shit I've ever been a part of uh, came from really surprising packages. Like it came out of like a 22 year old who hadn't given any thought to this. And they, you know, they grafted some really kind of fucked up backwards concept from a video game. And then they applied it to some weird framework that we were trying to build. And it, we all just sat there like with our jaws agape and uh, realized like, holy shit, this is the, you know, this is the change that, you know, that we're looking for. And it came from, you know, someone that, you know, knew the least about this or at least had the, you know, the, the, the least credentials in this. I, I, Hannah, I want to, I want to do just super, super tiny tangent here. I was part of a team that was building some stuff for um, one of the big four consulting companies. And they were building out personas and doing some experience stuff like 10 years ago. I just happened to be sitting on the team, uh, not talking, just kind of listening to what they were trying to accomplish. I was a, an outside strategist that they brought in. Um, not sure how it's going to be used. Uh, and one of the people at this company said, you know, the future buyer of our consulting services isn't going to be 59. They're not going to be whatever. They're going to be like 30. And they're going to be, they're going to, they will have risen through the ranks rapidly based on, you know, something that we can't see. Let's shift the persona that we're trying to sell to from 59 to 34. And everybody in the room's like, are you crazy? Like, that's not who buys our stuff. And they're like, I know, but this is, this is skating to where the puck will be. Like, this is, we have to start thinking about this now because we, we don't know how to integrate digital and human touch points very effectively. We, it's going to take us 10 years as slow as we go to do that. And they fucking did it. And it shocked me. And then they wanted to know, like, how do you, like, my job from that point was to figure out how to marry, like, uh, human and digital touch points in a very complex account-based uh, consulting model for, like, one of these huge firms. And think, you know, think about the buyer, at, you know, the, the object of our sales was a you know, someone that was 35 years younger or whatever. It's, it was just insane. Uh, they're the largest of their group now. Their sales are, you know, they, they sell billions and billions and billions of dollars of stuff because they think about this stuff. And that's insane, but it's true and it's brilliant. But if I, I mean, if I had to, if I had to swap out 27-year-olds or, or lower, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd probably be kind of excited about it. Um, I don't think you could leverage from a design, like we do a lot of design, so I think that would, you know, if the rule came, that would be our first, we could grab people to help with the design. I think that would be first because they're intuitively digital, right? So I think that would probably be the first transition point for us. And then uh, and then we'd get into the uh, strategy and content, but I think the first, because our, our, for our practice is made up of strategy, design, and content, so I think the but the easiest point would be for the startup from a design perspective. Thank you both for that. So let me just recap what I just heard. And I want to go back to you, Adam, for a second. So 
Stephen, if I'm hearing you correctly, you just said that a big, one of the big four consulting firms 10 years ago said our buying demographic is shifting from who we think it is right now, or 59, 60 year olds, down to 34. And are you saying that as a result of that, and I'm assuming other changes, but that being the focal point of our buyer is younger, our audience is younger, and going ahead and pivoting, that is the reason their sales are the highest of any of the big four right now? Well, no, they, they, the magic in my anecdote is really about um, understanding their latency. So understanding it's going to take them a long time to shift. Uh, they decided to do it early because they knew that in 10 years, 59-year-olds would not be buying their services. It would be people who were closer to like 30, 30 to 35 who would be the principal buyer of their services because their services were becoming more digital. So um, that was, that's just, to me, that's like a Herculean forethought, which is, you know, part, part of what the, you know, strategist toolbox needs to be like, can you, can you literally <laughs> see the future? Like, can you, can you put the stuff uh, on paper or digital? Uh, in such a way that helps us plan effectively. And they they could. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And then Adam, to go back to you. So let's, let's go back to the premise of this question. So if you had to replace half your staff or more with 27-year-olds, with um, I think it was interesting. So your, your first reaction, which I think would be many CEOs' reaction or leaders' reaction is, wait, what? Like, wait. Uh, oh my gosh, that would be incredibly difficult. But I think it's interesting that your your perspective, you're focused on how difficult it would be from the perspective of reputation or client relationships, not from the execution. Would that be fair to say? No, that's fair to say because I think the the issue, and Stephen touched on it, is the the trust and the credibility perception, right? Not from a uh, not from a deliverable standpoint. I'm you know I'm just dealing with you know, my, my own kids and seeing that I know for a fact they're, they're super talented and they can deliver, right? So from the delivery on the, uh, from a contact perspective, not an issue. It's more of a managing the client's expectations. Like and Steven said, you know, they want, you know, they want people with the gray hair, they're older, to, they're going to connote the uh, trust and uh, based on your experience. So I think it's more of managing the client expectations. Yes, this kid's 27, but we're going to deliver. So it would be a challenge, right? Because you have to manage 16. client expectations. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's go down this pathway for a second. So you all have small teams, let's say 10, 10 or fewer, managing um, roughly, I mean, I mean, I know each of your clients is much bigger. Do you all have like a, a number you'd be willing to share about how many clients you're working with on any given basis? We're, we're doing... Um... Transform, like transformations. So we're, we can't do more, you know, than like three or four clients at a time. Awesome. And Adam, responsibly. How about you? Sure. So our client base runs, it's usually, you know, 12 to 16 active clients right now. At a time. Where, where we're at. Nice. Okay. So y'all are managing, you've got small SWAT teams, basically managing a few clients very intentionally. So let's say for the sake of argument in this example, so for the case study, if you, were had, if you had to replace suddenly half your team with 27-year-olds, 
what, if anything, would change about the structure of your delivery of, of an engagement? Steven, you want to take this first? I don't know that. I think the structure, so that the team structure, what we do is we have a primary strategist, a secondary strategist, an account person, and then we have experts that wrap around them. You know, they might be experts in research or experts in journey, data stuff, um, or they might be like training people. Um, it it would be like if they if, if in replacing those people they didn't have the skill sets. That means that I would just be a lot busier as a, as a primary strategist. Uh, uh, probably because I'd be training like aggressively training people as fast as I you know, and furiously as I possibly could. Yeah, and I think, uh, like, I think our processes would also say the same, but we might, you would need, for example, if you had a 27-year-old, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but, like, we have project managers that have PMP certifications, right? So a 27-year-old may or may not have a PMP certification. So we would have to work on getting him or her a the PMP certification as a project manager. So you would both say you would be doing, you, like specifically you, would be putting yourself back into a lot of training, mentoring, et cetera, to get them up to speed to where you need them to be for clients? I would say yes. Every business owner, if there's a hole, will we'll jump in. Uh, so there's going to be certain... Uh, certifications or expertise that's going to be expected within each position, right? So if that, if using 27-year-olds as an example, if they don't have those certifications, we would work on creating a training program to get them those. Gotcha. Okay. So just just to go back to this idea of the credibility, not the delivery, for example, could be a challenge. So if I'm understanding both of you correctly, it's almost like you've got this front facing part that could be you, which I'm assuming in, in both of your cases, a lot of the sales and BD is still happening directly from you, right? Yes. You're I'm the one with the client relationship. You hold that relationship already. So here's a question. Let's, let's go back to our case study here for a second. What if You've got you, you're the one, you know, doing the active delivery. You're the one who's building the, you know, you're doing the BD, you're building the relationship. What if all your execution is done by young people who don't have certifications, who don't, maybe they don't even have college degrees. What they do have is skills and mindsets of creativity, curiosity, and things they're bringing from the native digital world, such as to your example, a second ago, Stephen a way to think about how to pull in, you know, video game concepts into a delivery model. Let's, let's, let's take that example just a step further and go there. You, you two are still there. You know, you're the face of the business. You're building the client relationships, but the execution is done by young people who are bringing yeah, completely different that, modes. That of would work because again, that would get back to, that would solve the uh, perception problem challenge you'd have with the clients. And it, as long as we're delivering great work, you know, frankly, they're not going to care how old the person did it, right? They're just going to say, "Wow, this is fantastic!" And, you know, so, you know, so I think that I think that would work. Stephen, what about you? Um, I don't. I, I'm not sure. Um, 
I, and I feel arrogant even saying this, but I, again, like part of what we do, it's just the way it's, it's kind of the idiosyncratic nature of our work. Like we have, if we're doing, if we're training like 800 accountants in 40 offices or whatever, and we're, we have, you know, teams of people that we're, we're trying to express the, you know, the differences between experience and service. And they're trying, you know, I'm, the, the, I have these people on the front line that don't have the experience to like draw from, uh, you know, that, to draw from their institutional knowledge or institutional memory to satisfy a question that someone in the field asks them, okay, so what, what if this happens? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Let me go ask an old person. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or, the, or we have like storage of like rebuttal questions or I don't know. But I mean, again, the model, I love this case study. It's really, it's intriguing. It doesn't come without challenges, but it's, you know, generally like as Adam has said it a couple times, like, uh, there are going to be uh, the issues with experience and issues with like having been in the trench for 20 years. Like I, I would venture to guess there's not a single goddamn thing you could ask Adam about digital marketing that he wouldn't know the answer to. And uh, that's rare. And, you know, that's something that is undeniable about these people. And it doesn't, you know, one of the fallacies of the kind of generational gaps you know, between Z, X, whatever, are that, you know, it's the form factor that, you know, implies the the value. It's not. It's like the, you know, it's some people have grown up digital um, and some of us just had to, you know, I had to, I, I had to like survive by understanding this stuff. So did Adam. So other people didn't have to survive. It was just a it was a, a thing that was just a super great luxury. My kids didn't have to survive by doing this. I had to survive. Like I had to pay a mortgage. Uh, and I had to pay like 25 people's mortgages uh, by understanding this better than anybody I was competing against. So, you know, I became probably as adept as any digital native, like inside of a couple of years, or at least I think I did. Otherwise I would have failed. I'd say you probably are more adept at understanding why certain technologies work. So he, thank you both for sharing that. And I think what you're sharing is very emblematic of how many business owners, CEOs feel. Um, because, so speaking from, from my generation standpoint, just taking this example of our case study, my generation, while we grew up natively digital, was not we were not the ones who created the technologies to create a native digital generation, right? Like <laughs> none none of the folks who created Twitter and Snap and Facebook and all of that, none of them are natively digital. They created a mechanism that then has resulted in these native digital humans, including myself, who have brain wiring that thinks differently because we grew up that way. But yet the valuable perspective we're missing is what it took 
to become so adept to what those technologies are that you sit down with any given, you know, 17, 18, 19 year old, they might understand how to navigate something, but we may not understand what goes into that tech the way that folks who transitioned, such as yourselves, into the tech understand it. And so these are fundamentally, and I definitely want to say equally valid perspectives. Here's the, the second thing I'm hearing you all say, which is, You've got the the reputation side and what other, you know, like customers or clients might expect, but then you have the execution side, which is potentially a completely different area. And I'll I'll sort of give an illustration of what's happening with my generation, which is I would say even exponentially bigger than what's what happened with the transition from natively analog humans into the world of, you know, social media, etc. And that is this entire generative AI situation that is happening right now. And I find myself just, I just turned 25 and I find myself thinking, oh my gosh, we are literally with generative AI technologies right where Bill Gates was when he got the, the opportunity to spend hours and hours a night coding using a massive computer and learning, you know, being the very first, um, in the very first wave of humans actively coding in this in this stuff. And here my generation is presented with an opportunity like that. Um, I probably spend five or six hours a day chatting with ChatGPT and the results have been absolutely mind blowing. Like I cannot even tell you all. Um, and so here's here's where I'm going with this. We are, so we've been talking about, you know, the reputation clients and and how Gen Z has been impacted or could be impacted if you guys were to say, Let's hire a bunch of high schoolers and early college students to do this. Um, let's take this a step further. So we've looked at some of like the hesitancies. Adam, let's start with you. Um, if you did have a team that was suddenly AI capable, let's say a bunch of teenagers who'd spent six, seven, eight hours a day chatting with ChatGPT, understanding how this these tools work, and they understood digital marketing and how t- and TikTok algorithms and how to create hype videos and how to design websites. If they inherently understood all of that, what might be some of the pros, like some of the crazy things that might happen with your business if they were half your staff or delivering and executing on, you know, at least half of your projects? What might be some of the the pros. So I think if I'm hearing the question correctly, because basically having that generation be able to leverage the artificial intelligence, which I think will be a game changer, right? You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, jobs that will be, won't be needed anymore. So I think if you could leverage that technology, and again, to create really dynamic deliverables, the client's Aren't going to care where the who did, who worked on those. So I so I think yeah I think that could be I think that could be the equalizer. Just saying hey we're going to leverage these new technologies. Could we're, we go so far as to say we got everything covered? Put, put stick someone old in front of the client. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, would would could we go so far as to say that if let's say a an eighteen year old is using something like ChatGPT to sound experienced and unlock results that are just phenomenal, like strategies that you might have never uncovered as someone with no institutional experience, for example. 
if they were able to use and leverage ChatGPT as a way as a way to get insight into a client before delivering, would it possibly be possible that those people, those 18-year-olds might have made a 10 or 15-year career jump in terms of what they might understand or know? I would I would say they're going to from a delivery perspective and leveraging the technologies, yes. I still think you're going to have the challenge with the just the the actual experience and the actual you know just number of years of grinding it out and doing you know just dealing with life over that period. Uh, I think that that's always going to be a challenge, but I do think they're going to uh, that generation will make leaps and bounds ahead of basically everyone as far as leveraging the technologies. So I think you got to, it's a dual-edged sword, right? You're going to have the, the cutting edge technology and deliverables, uh, but they're not going to have the, uh, the expertise, the experience and just, you know, the gray hair. Sure. Okay. Thanks for that. Steven, want to jump in here? Yeah. <clears throat> so Hannah, this is, a, this is a, a becoming a relatively common epistemological conundrum where um, you can create the you can create and present the knowledge. There, there are there are like really no real limitations on that anymore. Um, but you can't create the you know the step above knowledge, which is you know applied applied knowledge, or you know the step above applied knowledge is wisdom, which is how you know how to actually make the knowledge valuable. So if you study, that's, that always sounds so stupid when I say that. If you understand the, the, you know, basic communications about like, there's always a transmitter, there's always a receiver there, and there's complexities on both sides of that. You could, you could transmit like a lot of stuff that was generatively composed through chat GPT or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever Google comes up with next or whatever Elon Musk comes up with next or whomever. Um, but the way that people use that information, the way that in, the way that transmission gets received is going to be where the where the rub is. Like it's um, I've, I, I'm actively using it like I create stuff all the time to, you know, just to compare, like, what is it saying about stuff that takes a ton of knowledge to create and it's pretty striking uh how close it's becoming um but it's you know it, it can't do a lot of stuff that adam's talking about as well it cannot uh answer certain questions that were are requiring a lot more uh institutional memory or institutional knowledge um down the line and when it, a lot of work is like human to human connection it's like i'm i'm sitting at a table across from someone who's 7.6 times more intelligent than me, asking me a question and looking at my eyes and saying, you know, how are you going to do this? I don't have chat GPT like hardwired in my brain. Like I actually have to produce something. It's that's trust. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. So yeah. it's a really interesting conundrum though. No, this this is a discussion we could probably spend hours on unlocking because it's fascinating to me 
to watch, you know, four months ago, ChatGPT was at maybe a sixth grade level. And now I would say, well, we know for a fact it's producing and that it's scoring in the top 10% of the LSAT. It is like literally, I'm sure you guys have looked at these statistics, but you know, ChatGPT, GBT3 was in the bottom 10%, 10 percentile yeah. of the LSAT, right? And then GBT4 is in the top 10%. Like we're literally to the point where, where the capabilities of GPT and all these other models that are getting, you know, created right alongside of it is literally now uh, one could argue at MBA or master's status or more. And just to watch that happen in four months, he, you know, here I am sitting thinking, look at, look at the future of what could happen in four more months or a year from now, you know, it's absolutely mind boggling how quickly this is happening. And so just to come back to our, our core question here, I want to use the last few minutes to really look at some of the positives. So let's say that you've got this, the same case study. So you've got, you've got to replace half your staff with under 27 year olds. What could be some of the unlocks just thinking hypothetically. So let's, let's say there's, there's, let's say there's no downsides for a second. Hypothetically, the native digital perspective um, of pulling in the way that we've grown up, whether it's what we've experienced with learning um, and how we learn everything through digital tools instead of out of textbooks, or whether it's from the the impressions of uh, you know understanding how social media works or living in online communities where our community is global and where we're used to managing, I don't know, 20 different screens at once while we're pulling code from one place to another. Just thinking about the potential, back to your children, thinking about what your children are capable of, what could be some of the unlocks or opportunities that might exist for your, your firms if you had that sort of young person's potential to tap into? I'll go first, Adam. I, I, I don't have a good answer because I don't know. Like I, I, I don't know what the unlocks would be. Like I think I, I have this fantasy that I have, you know, a stable of like 10 people who are completely native digital that are in a room and their whole job is just to think shit up like like i'd like to like pose these like really vexing issues and then have them just work on them uh in kind of a think tank style um about digital experience i mean that's a that's a real need of my organization but i just don't know i haven't really thought that out as an mvp or whatever but I mean, one unlock would be, can you think through these like really vexing digital uh, experience issues that, that people have? And can we marry them to kind of the human touch point side of things and the, and the journey work that we do for our clients? Awesome. I, I think that could be a phenomenal oh. unlock, like having a having a team of native digitals whose sole goal is to think differently about problems and and solutions and creative ones like the most the most 
batshit crazy. Like if someone were to say, you know, if, if, so, if a client were looking for a solution to a problem and you have a team of native digitals, I can almost guarantee you they come up with solutions that you, that might seem so crazy on the front end that it would just be mind blowing. And then you look into it a little bit deeper and go, huh, huh. This is like category creating stuff, right? So I also think from a mindset perspective, if you, with that uh, generation, the native digitals, they're they're gonna by default they don't that's the way they think they're gonna think automatically how to leverage the technology, right? Which I think is which is different versus uh, my generation that 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 would be an option, right? Okay, well, let's look at technology, but let's try some other things. Uh, so I think the, having that mindset would be huge. They can automatically, hey, how do we leverage with the best technology out there? I think that, I think that's great. Thank you both for engaging in this. I know it was. This is a little bit of a, a different sort of episode. Like just thinking through possibilities where there's no like certain outcome. Um, it's been really interesting. I hope it has been for you guys too. And I know you guys have a hard stop. So um, any final thoughts that you want to to leave us with on any any parts of this topic? Steven, you got to hop first. You want to go first? No, I, 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 I quest like, of course I think about this probably more than I need to, but uh, I, I'm not fully bought into the like Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Y, millennial, Thing. Like to me, they're they're largely inconsequential because I, I grew I grew a couple of them and I, I deal with them all the time. There are like the differences that we create for them aren't as substantial as we think they are. Like we're we're the same for the most part. Um, so to me, when people say Gen Z or whatever, like sometimes I think like were were you born when Mercury was in Venus? Uh, it's kind of horoscopic to me in, in some cases, um, just because I have a different experience with it. So I still need to be convinced that there are really clearly defined lines which people were born and that their experience is so dramatically different uh, because I see it as a gradient that doesn't really have any boundaries. Yeah, so, I agree with that. I think uh, <clears throat> I, I I skew older, but I still been managing multiple generations. And I think universally, uh, you know, mutual respect, uh, flexibility, and being able to articulate your vision and why you're asking someone to do something. Uh, and this is why it's important to the organization. I think that translate. I don't think that's uh, to Stephen's point. I don't think that matters how old you are. Those are to me are universal themes. Nice. Well, we, I wish we had time to get into sort of a banter around that. Well, we will have to connect separately. This is, this is a very interesting topic, um, but thank you both for that. And this has been so cool. I appreciate you both, both being on here. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Hannah. I, 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 um, when this is done, fax it to my beeper. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Stephen, do you have the rolled up paper in the fax machine? Dot matrix. Dot matrix roll up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, 
you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.